0: They say, they say, we should have known better than to fall so deep down, deep down into this rabbit hole we found. And
1: Welcome I to Down the Rabbit Hole Enterprise, security, enterprise security, security News. All the news relevant to you and your business, squeezed into 20 minutes or less. And now... Welcome your Monday morning information security quarterbacks, James Jardine and the White Rabbit, Rafael Lopes. All right, and we're back live down the rabbit hole, episode 43, our newscast for June 3rd. Uh, it's gonna be a pretty exciting week this week. I'm um, one of your co-hosts, James Jardine, and I'm here with Raphalos. Raphael, how are you doing today? Hey, James. Man, it's good. It's good to be here because we're gonna have a lot of exciting stuff to talk about. I think we actually have some positive stuff uh, even to start off with.
0: Yeah, I think we've uh, we've we've ended the last step, a couple of episodes going. And we're gonna start cheery and then we sort of dive right into the abyss of hell. So, um. Starting off with a cheery up, cheery topic this week. I think what one, two, three, four, five, five or six topics this week, covered in twenty-ish uh, minutes or less. Yeah, because we always
1: they, keep it. We always keep it under twenty minutes.
0: <laughs> if, if if by <laughs> yeah. always you mean never, then yes.
1: So on a good note, and we're starting to see this more and more across a lot of different sites. Right? Microsoft's done it. Uh, Apple's implementing it, and now we're seeing Evernote adding their two-factor authentication uh, and some other. Uh, security features like being able to view uh, access history and the applications that have ac- uh, have access to your account, uh, being able to revoke a- applications as well. But now we've got two-factor authentication to sign into Evernote. I mean, how great is this going to be?
0: Now, now hold on because this isn't really two-factor authentication, is it? Is it? Because I think what we're seeing is we're seeing the and this is happening a lot, right? We're getting two-step. Authentication. Uh, actually, they call it two-step verification to be exactly precise, and we'll put the uh, link to this if you haven't looked at it, folks. But James, you, you brought up an interesting point. We have two-step verification. We have two-factor authentication or verification. Um, i, I Methinks we that we see a lot of confusion in uh, that this term.
1: And you know, just to help add to that confusion. Uh, the link that we have, which is actually out to Evernote's blog, where they're talking about their security update, uh, it starts off saying two step verification, also known as two factor authentication, uh, is designed to keep your account secure, blah, blah, blah. Uh, so <laughs> it, there definitely is confusion even amongst here. You know, is there a difference between two step, two factor, multi factor? What are we really looking at here?
0: So as as uh, as we were talking about this uh, my friend Phil Cox on Twitter just just tweeted this whole two factor on everything is just screaming for a robust multi-tiered trustworthy identity management system. Oh dear god. Let's not get crazy. Uh, but but you know so you're right uh, Evernote's done this um, but it's only for their I, I found out it's only for their premium users right now because I'm a free user and I'm a freeloader on this, on their system. Um th- there's a whole bunch of different places that are implementing uh, we'll call it multi-step uh, logins, right? Uh, Facebook did it a while ago. You could do it. Uh, Google uh, with their authenticator. Microsoft using Google's authenticator. Although somebody should check the temperature in hell because Microsoft is using Google's authenticator. Um, Apple is on that bandwagon. Um, things are, uh, things are progressing. And is multi-step better than what they currently have?
1: I mean, I think so. I mean, this is really going the same direction that Microsoft and Apple did. I mean, you get, you have the option of having a text message sent to you every time you log in or using the Google Authenticator app.
0: I can get on board with that.
1: Yeah. When I set mine up, uh, it initially walks you through the setup of only doing the text message. But once you get it set up, you have the option to go in and change it to the Google Authenticator app. And I, I mean, I use the Google Authenticator app for a lot of sites. So. I like if it's going to integrate directly in, you know, that's uh, way better for me because uh, it puts everything really in one place for me.
0: Yeah, now somebody's going to figure out how to compromise a Google Authenticator site and we'll all be screwed.
1: Yeah, that definitely would be a problem.
0: Uh, hey, but at least of... we
1: are, you know, seeing this um, happen for us, right? I mean, at least they're making an attempt. I mean, obviously, it wasn't long ago, a month, two months ago that, you know, they were in the news for being breached.
0: Yeah. Yeah.
1: Right and lots of information stolen. So uh, obviously that was their next step was adding to two-step verification to their systems.
0: Yeah, I think uh, the breach is generally a good sort of prod to get things moving faster in the secure realm. Although I, I sort of I sort of now start to wonder how much of this is real security uh, strategy versus how much is oh crap we got to do something quick. What's the easiest thing we can do? But I mean, it's a step in the right direction. Hey, speaking of uh, being screwed for a while, Dropbox was down for over an hour this week, like web page and all.
1: Yeah, so, I, you know, I didn't even realize it until I saw you tweeting about it that, oh man, Dropbox is down. And, you know, then there's concerns from people. I, I hope you have backups and Dropbox isn't the only place you're storing stuff and, you know, all this stuff. I mean, it really kind of opens your eyes to when we're using third party providers like this. What do we do when they go down?
0: But they're in the cloud; they they, they can't go down. But well, they do. The
1: nice thing about Dropbox is is everyone of your computers, if they're on, all have a copy of the data.
0: <laughs> well, my problem was that I had three of them that had copies of my data in different states, which was a which was a a scary thing for a while. There, um, it it, it came back, but. It is always interesting. I had somebody uh, tweet um, that they were hoping that it wasn't uh, a, a security breach because then all their data would have been compromised. And my reply back to them was, uh, if you're expecting uh, you know, Dropbox, to the mechanism for storage, to do all your security for you, uh, I, I, I uh, may hint that you're doing it slightly wrong.
1: Yeah, you may be doing something a little incorrect there, putting a little bit too much trust in these third-party providers. I know personally we don't, Uh, From a business perspective, use any provider like that to store any type of sensitive information. Pretty much my thought on those things is I don't store sensitive information up there. It's information that if somebody got it, eh, okay, whoop-de-doo, but not sensitive information. We have other ways to store that, and there's more secure sites to be able to do it.
0: Speaking of having to store a lot of things, the uh, NIST guide – uh, it's called the NIST Security Reference Architecture, published five fifteen 15 2013 uh, This sort of started making the rounds today. Um, it is uh, st- special publication, 500-299. And you know why it's called 500-299? Because it's 299 pages for the uh, Cloud Computing Security Reference Architecture. That is 299 pages.
1: So what you're saying is you need something to help you fall asleep at night. Go ahead and crack that baby open.
0: You know, I love NIST guides. Don't get me wrong. I love I love detailed, um, down-to-the-point guides like this, but you sort of start to wonder what are people's attention spans uh, in these types of uh, types of publications. I mean this is a very detailed guide, still in drafts because it's got the big draft uh, watermark on it, but – you know, it kind of goes through, uh, you know, risk. It goes through lots and lots of pretty pictures. Uh, it does have uh, – it gives you plenty of background on the de- all these definitions, how to do risk management, um, data analysis, methodology, and how they got to this reference architecture. Um, they build a formal model for the reference architecture, which starts on page 52, Um and so it, it's a good guide, and it's good that we're getting serious about cloud security in a formal way. I, I just wish there, were, there was a way for people like myself who have short attention spans apparently and think 299 pages may be a bit long.
1: Yeah, I mean it does make it, it – it makes it difficult. Anything that's really long like that that you have to try to weed through – uh, you know, it's it's difficult, especially with today. I mean, people have short attention spans, right? We're so used to switching everything we're doing every few minutes. You know, I'm, I'm bouncing between Twitter and Facebook and LinkedIn and my actual work and doing this and talking to people and texting. The whole day I'm switching jobs the entire time that for me to sit down and read 300 pages is... You know, it's it's difficult to do in any given moment.
0: You know, I I suspect, you know, I mean, the target audience for this obviously isn't your general technician or general business person. It's it's people that actually work deep in, you know, uh, uh, sleeves rolled up in cloud and technology. So, to some extent they're going to read it because it's got to be detailed it's got to be down very much granular but uh some sometimes i wish these guides came with like the cliff notes version um, that would provide uh sort of the the high, higher level um guidance on these things cuz cloud computing it look it's it's still a mystery to a lot of people um it's there's still a lot of uh, black magic surrounding uh, cloud computing, so especially on the security front, and, and I get that question all the time, and I wish I had a standard answer, but I suspect that a lot of the people that ask me how to, you know, what do you think of X for cloud security, or what do you, what would you recommend, blah, you know, whatever. I suspect that if I pointed them at a 299-page document, they might just go away and never read it again. Um, but you know, that maybe that's me. Uh, maybe I. Maybe I read these types of things because I really dislike my sleep.
1: <laughs> See, I would read it just so I could sleep. It uh, yeah, it definitely makes it difficult. And, you know, I think there is still a lot of confusion around cloud. I mean, I think most people, if you were to ask them, wouldn't even really be able to give you a good definition of what cloud computing is. Uh, you know, that's still a problem we have today is that there's a lot of confusion around that. You know, is it virtual machines? You know, that are hosted at a third party. Is it this? Is it that? You know, a lot of people don't really have that clear understanding of it. And it's very similar to our whole, is it two step? Is it two factor? Is it multi factor? You know, what's the difference between these? Is there a difference? How does that work? That we have that same problem in cloud computing.
0: We do. Hopefully we get, we get through it and over it at some point in the near future because getting pwned sucks.
1: Yeah. So I feel as though, you know, we're kind of, we started off kind of cheering. Maybe we should have done this backwards, you know, with Evernote adding two-factor authentication and kind of a, oh, you know, Dropbox is down Then oh, i got to read 300 pages. Now we start getting into, you know, did you see Drupal's site getting hacked this week? Um, You know, that's a pretty big breach. Uh, Note that it wasn't the actual CMS that they offer. It was actually the Drupal and the, I think, Groups.Drupal dot org
0: site forums and stuff
1: right your actual like drupal accounts not the the cms system they have out there but i mean this is just another site joining the ranks it's like this is a it's a club that people want to get in
0: hey i want to be the next password breached site out there I, you know, I, I got the, I got the notification email, um, about an hour after I saw it on Twitter, which is just proves the power of Twitter for information dissemination. But, uh, I, I got the notification, hey, we've been breached. Hey, you know, we should probably change your passwords. Um, and I'm thinking to myself, eh, I don't think I've logged into that site in years and I know I didn't reuse the password because I don't remember what it is. Um, What's the, I mean, what's the big deal? Like, do I care? Not, probably not, not really. Um, I care if they're, for example, their C, the, you know, the, the, uh, CVS system or whatever they use, um, for code management for their CMS got hacked. Now, that would be interesting and slightly disturbing. Um, cause if, you know, attackers get access to your code base, that turns into a problem. I suspect it's a problem for much for anybody that's, that's developed. I gotta, so, Slight side note, and I'll come back to the original point in a second, but I got a colleague of mine that works for a financial that does extremely high security on their code repositories. In other words, you know, who can access it when they can access it. You can't actually get through a code repository directly. You have to dr- jump through a proxy to get to, I mean, just ridiculous levels of I mean, digital certificates and all that. I mean, it's ridiculous levels of security to get to their code repository. And on the other end, you have it, you know, sites that have it sitting out on the web you know, public and anybody can access it, but thousands and thousands of people deploy their code. You got to start wondering how many apps out there, CMSs, you know, blog frameworks, whatever, have dirty code in them that somebody injected. It's just waiting to be used or is being used and nobody's noticing. I mean, it's kind of interesting, interesting idea to start thinking about.
1: Yeah, it definitely is. You know, you have to wonder what's out there. I mean, same thing for open source sites, you know, or applications that you see for open source, you know, who's checked something in that you you never realized was out there. I mean, there's definitely that concern about that. I think going back to the reputation side, you know, you say, oh, I haven't logged into that site in years. I You know, do I really care? I think a lot of people have that feeling in general. I think we're becoming so numb to the fact of people announcing that, oh, we had our entire credential database stolen. You know, People are just getting used to, oh, okay, I'll just go change my password. And I, I don't think that's okay, but that's just what we're starting to do. That's just a part of how cyber life goes in this day and age is that people are getting breached. You know, Did they get my actual data or just my password? Ah, I don't care. I can change my password. It, it's not as big of a deal. People kind of just play it off. And the, the negative side to that from a consumer side, But the positive for the business side is that, you know, hey, now a a whole bunch more people know what Drupal is that never knew what it was before. I felt the same thing when Evernote got hacked. I don't know so anybody really stopped using Evernote, but now everybody knows what Evernote is because now it's making mainstream media. Uh, And that's really what we're going to see here out of the Drupal hack. You know, it's just more people are going to now become aware of what Drupal is, especially since it didn't affect their actual CMS offerings.
0: Also, you used the word cyber life. I just came up with that on the fly. You like it? I, I no. <laughs> <laughs> that is uh that that's a little disturbing. Um <laughs> I don't I'm not even sure what to say to that. <laughs> but it but so Drupal's not the only one that's having uh that's having issues as far as uh, we're going to you know closing off this week on a and another interesting, um, well, two more interesting things actually. Um, for those of you that, that pay attention, um, Google made this interesting announcement that their disclosure timeline for vulnerabilities that are under active attack, um, the timeline for disclosure is changing. So they used to give every, you know uh, vendors, uh, companies, sixty days per their recommendation, right, to fix critical vulnerabilities. Um, or if not possible, you know, they should notify the public you know, and offer some kind of workaround within 60 days. Um, so they've shrunk that just, just a little bit down to seven.
1: Is that a little bit?
0: Yes, it's a wee little bit. Um, <laughs> they, they've shrunk it down to seven days for issues that are being actively uh, exploited. Um, they said, yes, seven days is aggressive uh, and it may, and uh, it may be too short for some vendors to update their products but it should be enough time to publish advice and possible mitigations, such as temporarily disabling a service, blah, 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 blah. How do you feel about that? Uh, You
1: know, I mean, I definitely think it's cutting it short. Uh, You know, nothing like slowly knocking down the notches and and maybe just cutting it in half to 30 days. Um, You know, I mean, I definitely think that if there's active exploits, I mean, we do have to be pushing for something to be released, but I think a lot of people, aren't they sending out, you know, information about this, that, hey, here's this vulnerability, here's possible workarounds, here's how you can get around it until the patch is available, Uh, to try to push a seven-day, you know, I mean, obviously, Google must be running a completely agile shop, and they're, you know, pushing code bases every five hours, but, uh, you know, a lot of places aren't doing that, right? If if you're on a two-week cycle, a a two-month cycle, you know, is it feasible to get a patch out? I mean, I I don't think it's that difficult to get information out if there is a valid workaround, but what if there isn't? It doesn't mean you you, can get a code base out.
0: Yeah, so that's what disturbs me a little bit. I mean, uh, on one hand, uh, they're saying, look, if it's being actively exploited, so that's the key, it's being actively exploited. They want vendors to be able to come back and say, look, here's if you don't have a fix in seven days, and if you can make a fix in seven days, then you're just awesome. But... um, even some of the best vendors in the world can't can't meet seven days. But if you can't make a fix in seven days, then at least you know give us a workaround of mitigation, something. Uh, and for that, I think seven days is fair. And I would actually contend that for that, seven days is long. Um, I, I you know when you've got an actively exploited vulnerability in the wild, being beaten on by attackers, um, to hear to have your vendor wait. As long as seven days to give you a possible workaround, that's kind of scary to me. I mean, I, as a, as a security professional, I'm thinking yeah, 12 hours may be a little long, but you know, uh, the, on the other end of that spectrum, you've got the people that are now going, oh heck, we're exploitable. Um, we have to put something together quickly. And the last thing, the absolute last thing you want is a rushed patch. Believe me when I say that. Are you afraid it's going to have adverse effects? No, I'm afraid it's going to have <laughs> catastrophic effects. Been there, done that. I I saw um, we patched a a long time ago in a kingdom far away in, my, in a previous life. Got a, a vulnerability in uh, an SSH platform that we were using from a company that um, made a commercial SSH server, and the, we you know we knew there was a vuln for it. There was an emergency the patch that came out. We applied the patch and quickly lost access to all of our remote SSH servers, which was awesome.
1: It you know, it really kind of brings back to me the first thing I think of is when the antivirus companies push out a signature that flags a you know very important Windows file. You uh-huh. know, and all of a sudden you you just updated your antivirus and your machine is now
0: bricked. Uh, my favorite ones are where the antivirus flags itself as a virus. Uh, wasn't Sophos that just uh, sorry Sophos folks, but you guys you guys are the last one that stick in my mind. But weren't they the ones that recently had a antivirus signature that flagged its downloading and updating mechanism as as malware, and so <laughs> removed it, and so now you're like, hey, not only does my system not work properly, also antivirus doesn't work, and now there's no way to remotely update it. Awesome, right? I win.
1: Yeah, you know, I mean, it just I, I agree with you. I think you know, being able to release an advisory that that gives people a mitigation definitely shouldn't take that long, right? Enough time to, hey, what is really going on here? How's the exploit work? How can we, you know, talk people through remediating this uh, to mitigate it while we, we do the patch? But, you know, actually getting a patch out there may be a stretch for a lot of places, I think, in that short limited time span. And then I think, you know, we have the issue of people
0: not applying patches. And that brings us to our last point.
1: I don't understand. You know, So our last story was talking about these Ruby sites that are getting uh, pretty much owned. The servers are getting owned from a vulnerability that was patched back in January. And it's still, I mean, this is big news two days ago, that these sites are still getting exploited. From a you know a vulnerability that was fixed, you know almost six months ago.
0: That's almost as bad as getting uh, getting malware that you know, exploits your organization, uh, starts exfiltrating data, and is based on a patch that Microsoft fixed April 2012.
1: Yeah, you know I mean this is something that is harped at least from the IT security industry all the time: patch your systems. Right. When we do assessments, patch your systems, <laughs> we, obvi- we always point out, Hey, you're missing critical patches. Um, you know, I mean, I, we were just doing an assessment where, I mean, patches from two years ago were missing. You know, this is unacceptable when you're looking at some of the exploits that are out there that, you know, you have to have a patch management program in place to be able to identify what software do we have? How do we track when? vulnerabilities arise in that software when patches are available and then what's our process for applying that patch in a test scenario, testing it, making
0: sure it works so we can then apply it to production as, as soon as possible. Yeah, so this is my my last point I'll make on this newscast is if you're if you're out there in software development land and um, you're follow, trying to figure out how to best write code that your clients can actually and customers can actually use um, one of the things of, you know, Josh Corman's rugged software, uh, initiative, one of the things of that initiative and many others like it is, uh, make sure your code is built to be patched, built to be fixed on the fly. I mean, this is 2013. You should not have to reboot your machine to patch a browser vulnerability. I mean, come on, right? This is not, you know, Windows should be able to patch itself on the fly without having to fully power down the machine. You know, same with Office, same with whatever widget app you're using. If uh, if you're you know browser plugin, Java Flash, whatever. I mean, they figured out how to not have to reboot the machine. Why can't we? Why can't we do that? And that's that's my one rant for this for this episode. It just still makes me bonkers when I'll you know what go to update uh, Evernote. Speaking of Evernote, when to go to update Evernote and it requires me to close all my programs or reboot. I'm like, really? Come on.
1: I feel as though that's not the first time I've heard that rant, Raf. I don't know. It's okay, though. I expect better. Repetition. That's what gets it out there. And uh, I agree 100%. You know, I mean, we have to start, you know, taking patching seriously and not just from a I implement the patch, but I'm the writer of the software. I'm the writer of the application. How do I manage uh, being able to patch my software without forcing, you know, a full download or a full Whatever that we have to do to get this thing in here, I don't want to have to shut down Firefox and this and that and all this just to, you know, update my blogging software. It's a little too much. So I think that pretty much wraps up episode forty-three, our newscast for June third. And
0: uh, and to think about that, haha.
1: Ha. I know I did, and it's even worse because I have it written in front of me. Uh, So, uh, you know, uh, if you want more information, you can definitely check us out on the web. Um, Go out to podcast.whiterabbit, WH1T3rabbit.net. Download all the podcasts that we have out there. And we will see you again next time. Bye bye then. You've been listening to Down the Rabbit Hole Enterprise Security News. Give us feedback on our website podcast.whiterabbit.net that's wh1 t3
0: r-a-b-b-i-t or on twitter at white Rabbit wh1 t3 r-a-b-b-i-t until next time on behalf
1: of co-hosts james jardine and the white rabbit Rafael los thank you for listening